the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. My guest this week is Taoiseach Michal Martin. We met in government buildings on the day he announced the introduction of new restrictions on the economy from Christmas Eve onwards. In the first half of the programme, he explains why these measures were needed, his hopes for the vaccine rollout later this month, and how extra supports will be put in place by the government to reboot the economy. In the second half of the show, he gives me his view on the likelihood for a deal on Brexit by the year-end deadline, and how we could do more to boost the North-South economic relationship. And a bit more besides. Here we go. Um, Taoiseach, first of all, thank you for joining Inside Business. It's been a, a busy, busy time of year for you with Brexit and with COVID. Yep. And today you just announced some new COVID restrictions, uh, which are going to take us into the new year. Just explain to us the rationale behind that. Well, the rationale behind that is the rapid growth in numbers of cases, particularly in the last week. Um, there's been an exponential growth, um, really, which is, which is out of the norm mm. uh, in terms of the growth that was happening the, the two weeks before that. Uh, and in particular, um, you know, the, the advice, we had presentations last evening from NEFIT, HSE, and from um, Central Statistics Office. Uh, and based on the rapidity of the growth, plus the emergence of the new variant in the UK, and the strong possibility it could be in Ireland, we have to work on the basis that it is, in terms of our decision-making. Uh, we decided to move um, um, in a severe way to, uh, again, bring in... Uh, What's close, what level five um, restrictions, uh, very significant restrictions, particularly in hospitality, mm. which is um, very upsetting for all concerned. It's it's a sector that has taken a huge hit since the pandemic began. Start up, reopenings, shut down again, reopenings in different counties. If you remember during mm. the summer, we had level three re- restrictions. So the hospitality has taken a very big hit. And the wet pubs in Dublin still closed and probably yes. going to be closed for yeah. some time I mean, to come. I mean, some people are commenting about you know reopening up but like we didn't open up um, a whole lot in the sense of wet pubs have been closed consistently for a long, long time. What that means is in the context of next year, um, we did provide a lot of funding in the budget through the recovery fund and other funds to make sure we can continue the EWIS um, and the what we call the CRISP um, uh, interventions and the PUP interventions. But also in terms of our national economic recovery plan, we're going to have to really... Um, engineer a reboot of the hospitality sector post-COVID because it's taken an enormous hit. Uh, and we've, whereas we've brought in a whole range of schemes, to be fair, in terms of reduction of VAT and so on, and in terms of the, the, um, uh, the restart grants and mm. EWIS and mm. and all of that. But nonetheless, uh, it's taken a significant hit. And, uh, we, and you know, we did announce rates relief again for Q1 for, 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 for businesses who were affected by, by these decisions. So this, this reboot... Uh, what form will it take? How much well, are you going to put behind it? Well, I, we don't have the specifics in terms of funding yet, but we, it will have to, uh, in my view, be targeted in a way to uh, allow um, enterprises to, to um, pick up after COVID. And, and, and look, there will be, there's about 12.5 billion over and above last year in terms of savings in, in personal household savings. So there's a lot of pent-up demand in the economy if we get to a mm. post-COVID situation. 
um, that we can direct some of that into the domestic economy, and particularly hospitality. Obviously, international travel back into the country would be important as well, but all of this is in a post-COVID scenario. I mean, tra- tra- travel numbers have been down enormously, over 90% mm. on last year. Sure. Uh, and that's impacted big time on tourism and hotels and the general hospitality um, sector. But... What I'm saying is we have to put a, a multifaceted plan together because I acknowledge and I realise that it, it's on the floor like it's been hit very hard. And um, we, what we're endeavouring to do during COVID has been through the supports that we've put in place to keep these businesses intact so that in a post-COVID world they can pick up on any bounce and that it would be well positioned and, and resourced. That would have to, and that would have to look at a number of instruments, mm. which we've, you know, we, we have through tax... Um, uh, through direct funding, income supports, uh, rates relief. We've provided already a range of instruments, but in a recovery mode, you'd have to perhaps tailor those um, uh, supports uh, in the direction of, of enabling sure. and, and um, being a catalyst for growth. After you announced the restrictions, a number of uh, people within the hospitality sector were on the airwaves commenting on the impact it's going to have on their businesses. Um, there was one in particular who said that the CRIS um, that you mentioned, the CRSS um, scheme, I think it applies to 10% of 2019 turnover. And this person said, well, you know, that really needs to be increased to 30% um, to be able to survive. Another person made the point that um, the employee wage subsidy scheme, uh, which you referenced a few moments ago, that that needs to be extended beyond its, its current end date uh, around the end of uh, Q1. So what are your plans specifically in relation to those two? Because I think there are two areas that the uh, hospitality sector over the last 48 hours have really been focusing in on. Yeah, well, the EWIF scheme, I anticipate if we still have the COVID uh, live and well at the end of March, and we will have a substantial degree of COVID um, still in, 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 in the community by the end of March, so we'll continue to roll on uh, EWIS. Um, and also in terms of the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, mm. is looking at the CRIS scheme in terms of, of its application to hotels, because we have to take into account the fact that even though throughout December, uh, you know, they couldn't really um, realise too much of the uh, potential of the, of, the, of the reopening because of the fact that you, you had restrictions on uh, county travel, you had, um, you know, uh, various household restrictions and so on. So it wasn't opened up as much as people might think mm. for the benefit of hotels now. Um, and so, therefore, we're conscious of that, and, uh, and he will be looking at the Chris to see can he um, take on board those issues that hotels have raised with us in terms of the drawdown for them. So that and 10% the applicability and the applicability of the scheme, you know. Sure, that ten percent number might rise. Well, I'll have to. I'll talk to. I mean, uh, Pascal will, will address that, but he's addressing a number of issues that have been raised in respect of how hotels um, find it difficult to benefit from the existing um, Chris uh, parameters. And the need to see how we can make sure that, they, that they're not disadvantaged um, through having opened up mm. and having to close again. How long is this going to? We'll also look at providing them with restart grants again when the time comes for reopening. Sure. Uh, how long is this period of restriction likely to last? Uh, Leo Racker has been out saying that it could be two months. Well, we're reviewing it at the end of, of the 12th of January, but it could, in terms of the business sectors, it could go longer. Um, we have to acknowledge that in terms of the hospitality. Um, and obviously also the, um, the rollout of the vaccine is a factor here, but we do know, and as I have said previously, that the, uh, the volumes of vaccines coming in will be on the lower end of the scale in January and February, okay? Um, and they'll be used predominantly in terms of uh, healthcare staff, uh, key workers, um, and, and nursing home residents. Um, and, um, but 
from March onwards, it picks up um, higher numbers again in May and June of, of, of the volumes of, of vaccines coming in as the manufacturing uh, ramps up globally. There will be three vaccines available by the end of January, um, Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna and uh, AstraZeneca. So, um, so you know, I wouldn't... I, I, again, it's always prudent to revise as you go forward because uh, we learn all of the time in relation to this virus. Um, and so, for example, if you take level, the first knockdown, construction, everything was shut down. That did hit the domestic economy mm. very significantly. And in fact, we were probably hit more than most of our European counterparts. Our export economy is doing very mm. well. Exports are actually up this year, I think, 5% uh, on an annual basis. That's the multinational, the, pharm- the medicine, the pharmaceutical, and the uh, technology uh, and medtech. But... Um, in terms of our domestic economy, it took a big hit. Now, the second wave, we kept construction going. We kept our schools open, which were closed in the first lockdown. Again, in this particular wave, we've kept non-essential retail going. Uh, we have to monitor that um, and keep that under review. Um, and um, so the point I'm making is I think it makes sense to periodically review what you are doing. Uh, clearly, there, there, there are challenges in terms of hospitality, um, but we'll keep it under review. So is this something that could go on until March? Which? The, the restrictions that for businesses... For, for well, some, some, of the, some, some of the restrictions could, yeah, but they not could. for everybody. I mean, yeah. there may be opportunities to, to, to look at them again in respect of some sectors, you know. You know, like personal services are going to take a hit as well in terms of hairdressers and that. And they made huge efforts to try and um, keep people protected. But I think we took the precautionary position in relation to looking at this as if the variant is here, you know, um, and, um, you know, very close contact with people one-to-ones, uh, if it is as transmissible as is being said, then that could pose a problem. Uh, so we will look at all that again on the 12th of January. Okay. Now, you mentioned in your speech earlier that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. That light is the vaccines, and you've you just said that there mm. will be three, hopefully anyway, three available by the end of January. When does the first Irish person uh, get a vaccine? We're looking I know at the, the vaccines are on their way, essentially. But yeah, they're on their way, I think, the 26th. The 26th arriving into the country. I think yeah. you're looking at the end of the month. Um, I mean, I'm loath to give the exact date. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the logistics have been worked on the HSE's plan, but um, before the end of December. So with a fair wind at your back and, you know, the, the vaccines, manufacturing going well and, and all of that, um, how many people do you think will have been vaccinated by, let's say, the 1st of June next year? Well, we're not going to... Like, we're very slow to give numbers just yet. I mean, our... People are very cautious here uh, and in the Department of Health as well because until the vaccines arrive in, uh, in the first instance, you know, we have our contracts with, with, with Pfizer mm. and Tech. But let's presume that they do. Uh, and that, uh, as I said, the first two months will be low enough volumes. Uh, this was according to the President of the European Commission two weeks ago at the European Council meeting when, when uh, Ursula von der Leyen briefed us on this. Um, and so we will be concentrating very much in the first two months on um, community you know, nursing units, uh, residential homes, healthcare workers, and key workers, uh, and, and the older population. That will be the first, um, because the, the first vaccine is, the, the evidence is that its greatest strength is in preventing illness um, and, and mortality. So therefore, you, 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 you administer it to those who are most at risk, so that's the older age cohort. Um, I think, to be honest, you're looking into April, May, for significant sections of the um, population to have been vaccinated. And when you say significant sections, how many people are we talking about? What I'm not going to give specifics right now. Yeah, I don't, I'm not in a position to, and I'm being cautious deliberately, mm. uh, because I think we need to, the, the key message from us is it does give light at the end of the tunnel, 
But equally, whilst it, people are being administered the vaccine, we all need to stay very vigilant in terms of our personal yeah, behaviour. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. But people are keen to know, you know, when we... Ah, they are, yeah, yeah. And I think the, the, the task force will be outlining, the, the HSE mm. is coming up with a further operational plan to the national task force, and they'll be, they'll be letting the public know. Again, with a fair wind at your back, when do you think the whole population could be done by? Well, I would like to think, um, certainly, um, by, by late autumn, I would like to see uh, a substantial proportion of the population done. Um, and certainly there will be, uh, in a co- according to the European Commission, there will be a signal, you know, there shouldn't be a difficult in, difficulty in supply uh, by the end of the autumn, by August. So what are we talking about, the end of October? Well, I'd say I just would caution here that mm. this, I mean, already Pfizer-BioNTech has come ahead of schedule. Um, already Moderna is coming ahead of schedule. A lot of this depends on manufacturing capacities globally and within Europe. Pfizer-BioNTech has been manufactured in Belgium. So uh, they could start ramping it up. They may contract it out to others to, to ramp up. So we could get an acceleration of this. Um, and um, so you have to, you know, that, that's that's where we are on this. But I think that it's on, basically. You, the, you, you, we're now looking at essentially two vaccines that will be authorised mm. before the 10th of January um, and the third somewhat later in January. So that's a significant progress by any yardstick uh, but there is still a journey to go and also then there will have to be very significant monitoring of the efficacy of the vaccine mm, uh, of on two fronts really that its capacity to reduce illness and 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 and, and that and mortality but also its capacity to um um reduce transmissibility you know and um that that'll be a key one so by <clears> the end of the autumn uh, i don't really stuck note to the headline you know <laughs> martin says you know it's just but too, this is what a fair wind back. I mean, nobody's going to hold your feet to the fire on this because it is, there, there are a lot of movables look, yeah. which are out of your control. That's, that's of, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, what, what Ursula von der Leyen said to us was basically, yeah. you know, that there'll be a significant ramp up in manufacturing. She thinks May, June are very important months in terms of volumes that will come in in significant numbers. And then by the, the end of the autumn, by August, there will be plenty for supplies. Okay. But a lot so, depends, like there's a lot of, for example, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is a difficult vaccine enough to administer. Others will be easier. Mm. So as the easier, you know, there was another, there's seven that Europe has signed up to seven consortia. So the latter four, some of them might be easier to administer and that could increase your speed. So there's lots of imponderables. There. Have you any date for the vaccine yet, yourself? No, I'm, I'm down the, 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 I'm down the uh, pecking order the in terms journey. of uh, the queue that's there, or the, sorry, the, the um, yeah. sequencing uh, that, that's been laid out. Joe Biden got it yesterday, or at least, uh, uh, yeah, he got it yesterday. And uh, I suppose it was important symbolically um, for him as the next uh, president, as president-elect, to take it, given that Donald Trump, you know, we don't really know where he stands on uh, taking the vaccine. Um, well, he, I believe his view is that he has the antibodies. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But an important symbolic um, measure yeah. by uh, Joe Biden, showing leadership, uh, essentially. I'm taking the vaccine, it's safe yeah, to take. Yeah. I feel it's safe to take. You should take it as well. Would it not be good for you or wise, perhaps? Uh, I've no problem taking I, I will be taking the vaccine. People know that. I mean, I'm very But if you were seen on camera being one of the first, one of the early yeah, I mean, adopters. But, but again, I don't want to jump the queue. I mean, that, that's the other side of that coin. And if the uh, public health uh, authorities and the task force, if they... Uh, give a sequencing as to who's to get it first, then I think we should follow that. And that's another form of example, um, that we follow the example of, follow the model that has been set as the optimal one for the country. But I'm very clear I'll be taking the vaccine. All right, very good. 
We'll take a short break now. When we return, I'll ask the Taoiseach about many more issues, including the growing government deficit, the future of the All-Ireland economy and the likelihood of a Brexit deal. At Davy, we know your well-being should be financial as well as personal. And now when it's a little more challenging, if you're in a position where you have a pension, it's never been more important to get active. So talk to one of our trusted advisors now and we can help you find a solution for your pension needs. A solution that could help you feel better about your financial future. Let's start the conversation. Call us today or search Davy. Davy, it's not just business, it's personal. Janey Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. When would you hope then that <clears throat> Ireland and the economy um, might I think, be back to a normalised level? I think we're. It's a, it, it, I, I think the what, what's interesting is in Q3, for example, when we opened up again into like there was, the economy bounced back somewhat. Um, so our capacity to re- to recover is there. Of that, I'm, I'm satisfied. I think the objective of government to maintain income levels and maintain the viability of businesses has been quite effective. In fact, the Central Statistics Office in its presentation last evening made the point that in its analysis of, of, of the income interventions uh, that they've maintained, some I mean, they've kept the reductions on personal incomes quite to, to manageable levels, you know, overall. And I thought it was interesting. And there were generally positive response in terms of the impact of those measures. point I'm making is that I think the economy, we could hold a lot of it intact and maybe we might be able to limit the scarring effect of COVID-19 on the economy or in certain sectors of the economy. The one that worries me is hospitality mm. and travel and, tour- travel and tourism. Um, so uh, in terms of the question of normality, I think there'll be new normals. It'll take us a while. It's going to take a while for aviation to get back to normal. And that could go well into 2022. 2022, uh, even first half of 2023. You know, there's mm-hmm. lots of uh, huge work needed there. Uh, tourism, for example, is very difficult to assess people's behaviours. Uh, when will people feel in themselves safe and satisfied to travel for the purposes of tourism? Uh, so when will Americans decide it's okay to travel to Europe, uh, for example? These are all big questions for Ireland because we depend a lot on those markets for mm, tourism of and travel and all of that. So whenever the dust settles on, on COVID, um, as it were, how many jobs? You see, yeah, I think the, so I was going to make one key point here yeah. is that we had a pre-COVID economy. We'll try and recover as much as that as we possibly can. We've got to think of a post-COVID recovery as well. And, and the European Union Recovery Fund, as part of the MFF and as part of the um, um, Next Generation Funding and the Recovery Fund at Europe, I mean, it has two key themes in it, the green economy and um, uh, digitalization transformation. We are submitting a plan to Europe ourselves in terms of the recovery and resilience plan uh, to draw down funding that has been earmarked for us. But, we, but that has to, sub, that has to um, meet the requirements of the European Recovery Fund, i.e. it has to be uh, significantly weighted towards digital transformation and towards um, uh, the green economy. So I do think those, those two sectors will be sectors that will grow in the next decade and will be part of the new Irish economy story. And what do I mean by that? I think offshore wind will be a significant growth sector mm. into the future. And I think we will be investing in that. And I also think uh, the retrofitting of housing will be a permanent feature of the domestic economy. We're already ramping up the skill sets enabled to, to necessary to do that. And our higher education department have already increased mm. particular programs to, to get skilled people uh, for retrofitting sure. on the digitalization, uh, I think digitalization of public services, for example, 
I'm looking, hopefully we can draw down funding from this fund for the health services to once and for all digitalize our health service, electronic patient records. Some work is on the way already on that, but that we would comprehensively deliver that um, uh, over the next number of years in a post-COVID okay. um, society. So the point I would make is... Mm. Uh, there's also how do we, and then there's, there's a strategy for remote working, which the Tonishu will be launching in, in, in January. Uh, so we are looking at the post-COVID world as well and saying, look, there'll be new opportunities for growth in addition to that, in, in addition to the traditional sectors that where we've experienced activity in Ireland. But when the dust settles on COVID, how many jobs do you think will have been lost permanently? And how many companies will have gone out of business? Because some have, have already. Some have, but could be replaced by others. Uh, so our view is to get back to pre-COVID employment levels as quickly as we possibly can, and that will form part of the national economic growth plan. That mm-hmm. will be a target, to get back to uh, pre-COVID employment norms. Have you any sense of how many jobs are going to be lost over this period? Um, there's different... A lot of people are guesstimating, um, but our view is that at the moment we're supporting hundreds of thousands of jobs. Um, and our sense is that when I mentioned earlier the 12.5 billion in additional savings domestic that will help in, in terms of rebooting an economy post-COVID but uh, there will be losses of course but we think we can make them up you know and we think we can recover the economy to pre-COVID employment levels Do you have a date in mind? Um, I think within uh, certainly within two years of, of, of the launch of the plan yeah Within two years of the launch mm. okay and when will yeah. it be launched when do you in January, it's in January yeah January okay mm. so all right, 23, January, mm. by January 23, okay. Um, and what about the cost of COVID um, to the exchequer? Uh, you know, again, when the dust settles, what do you think the, the overall cost will we're be? We're looking at about 40 billion, I'd say, yeah. Right. Yeah, maybe just a bit less than that because, um, you know, we have a deficit this year of 6.5%, um, about 5.7% next year um, okay. deficit. It has been enormous intervention in health and then and, and all the various business support schemes that I've mentioned. I mean, I think the business support schemes are about a billion a month at the moment. Mm. Uh, and then you have a lot of expenditure as well in terms of, you know, in education and health and all the various departments to deal with COVID. Um, so it, it has added to the debt. Yeah, of course. Uh, now, we're very lucky in that we're able to borrow from international markets at very, very uh, low rates. So that's that's good. But the money will have to be repaid. So I'm just wondering... How are we going to, how is the exchequer going to meet the cost of that mm. ultimately? <clears throat> and is it going to, is it inevitable that taxes are going to have to rise? Well, I think there's, first of all, um, a lot of that deficit is built up by expenditure that's exclusively related to COVID. Um, and that will naturally fall out as COVID abates. Uh, others, so for example, in this year's budget, we've embedded some additional expenditure into health over and above COVID. And that is having a big impact. So, for example, the Winter Initiative is actually having an impact on flow through hospitals and nurse, the home care packages, the community interventions. So emergency admissions are down. Sorry, people waiting on trolleys are down 55% now. I think it is, as of today uh, on last year's levels, actually higher earlier. Like two weeks ago, we were mm. 70% below last year's waiting on trolleys because of investments in the full ecosystem around. Mm, um, sure, but that becomes an embedded cost, doesn't it? It does. And, and that's where we'd have to assess then prioritization in terms of expenditure and any revenue generating measures that we might have to, 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 to pursue. And I think Michael McGrath has already signaled that uh, in, in an earlier statement he made. But again, we don't intend to do any sudden sharp uh, jolts uh, to the economy. This would have to be gradual uh, in terms of the wind back, if you like, of the additional expenditures. And the first, the first priority will be winding back the COVID exclusive expenditures. Um, uh, and... Um, you know, I think already towards the end of 2021, we should have a less of a deficit, 
No, that depends on the, the course of the virus. The European Central Bank's intervention has been key in terms of enabling low-cost borrowing and so on. Uh, that's continuing right up to March. Um, so that, 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 you know, that's, so you have a marriage of fiscal and mm. monetary. I think it's the, the course of the virus is going to determine this, but remember that other European countries will be using the vaccine as well. America is rolling out the vaccine. They're key markets to Ireland. So if their economies start improving as a result of the vaccination program, we should benefit as well, you know. Yeah. Um, so it'll be a gradual rundown, if you like, or and it's starting with the COVID exclusive expenditure. Yeah. But, but we'll have to, to roll back that deficit over time. Sure, yeah. Um, but you talk about revenue, revenue generating measures. It's hard to imagine that taxes won't have to increase. Well, it's too early. I mean, the government program is there. We, we, we have, the, you know, we've we have a pensions review that's underway. Uh, that may come with its own um, requests as well uh, in terms of solving that in terms of the longer term issues. Um, so look, it's too it's too early to be specific in terms of what measures we'll take to um, roll back the deficit. But we have to get roll it back at some stage and be over time. Sure. Would you rule out income tax increases? Well, at the moment, the program for government has ruled out income tax increases, so that's a matter the government will have to, to deal with. Mm. But you of know. course, COVID has kind of... You know, COVID has changed a lot and it's yeah. made it very, very difficult, mm. you know. But um, we'll take it, you know, we're not going to rush into decisions in that, recent, in that sense. We have a clear idea in the, in the, tra- the trajectory in terms of the parameters we set ourselves. We're in the middle of the pack across Europe mm. in terms of borrowing. Uh, as I say, about 6.5% this year, about 5 five. 0.7% deficit next year. Um, Brexit, we're nine days away from the end of the year when we're supposed to have a deal or no deal, uh, as the case may be, on this uh, new relationship between the European Union and the UK going forward post-Brexit. Um, so with nine days to go, negotiations are still deadlocked. What's your view, deal or no deal? It's um, it's, it's getting uh, tight in terms of timelines. My gut instinct you know, it, it, it has changed over time. The fact that progress was made on level playing field gave me cause for optimism about two weeks ago. Uh, it's got stuck in fish. Fish is very difficult for member states, including Ireland, um, because the status quo is just not possible to maintain. Uh, and so you're faced with a deal that does some damage to the Irish fisheries. A no deal does terrible damage to, 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 to Irish fisheries. So it's not a great story from the fisheries perspective. And in terms of a deal, um, they've been toing and froing uh, with various kind of offerings on the fish issue. Hasn't they haven't found resolution, and it's proving to be very difficult. Um, so I think it's 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 um, you know it's very difficult to predict whether they get a deal before the end of the year or not. Um, and um, and the, the whilst there has been some movement on the EU side on the fisheries. Um, that hasn't been quite reciprocated uh, on the UK side, to my knowledge. No, the talks have gone very quiet, uh, which in itself can be a positive, um, and we have to wait the outcome of that um, deliberation. And I, I think, you know, there may be political factors afoot in terms of the timelines around this as well. Um, but um, I think given the challenging situation now in the UK and across Europe and in Ireland in relation to covid the last thing we need is uh, another seismic uh, shock to the economy. And I've been very consistent from the get-go that it's in everybody's interest, Britain, Ireland and the European Union, that we get a deal. And I hope we get a deal. I think they are still engaging. They're st- they are still talking. Uh, I think significant progress was made on level playing field and dispute resolution mechanisms. Uh, so uh, there's every prospect of a deal, uh, but one could never say with certainty that it will happen given the 
uh, the factors that are involved. And given the most recent um, challenges for the UK in respect of Brexit and the decision of the French, for example, in terms of, 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 of the port and the freight decision, um, all that must be adding to the, uh, the overall tension around this. Um, so on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being deal done, 1 being no deal, where do you see it lie? <laughs> uh, I, I think, look, on balance, um, my view is that there, 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 you know, I would believe there will be a deal done eventually. Um, oh, eventually, but by the end of oh, sorry, in the next, by the end of, I mean, right. I, I think on balance, I, I, personally, I think it's incomprehensible that, the, that a deal wouldn't be done, given the enormous impact on people. And the fact that they've been negotiating and have come now well along the way. I mean, I was saying three weeks ago, they were 97% along the way. They're even further along the way now. And it wouldn't make sense uh, that we wouldn't have a comprehensive uh, future relations agreement because this isn't just about trade itself. It's about aviation. It's about energy. It's about um, research, uh, security, judicial cooperation. All of those areas makes absolute sense that Britain and Europe are in harmony on a lot of fronts given the geopolitical situation in the world. Um, and um, uh, so, look, I, on balance, I think uh, ultimately there, there, there will be a deal done, I would think, but I can't be certain about that. Okay. And a deal by the end of this year, by the timeline? Yeah. Okay. How damaging would a no deal be, and how prepared are we? It would be very damaging. Of the, you know, we know that from ESRA studies, from um, from the uh, Department of Finance analysis. It would be very damaging to the agri-food industry and fisheries. It would be very damaging to the re- regionally in terms of the Western Seaboard and the border counties, um, and um, uh, it would knock a lot off. You know, quite a significant percentages off our potential GDP into the future. Um, and um, um, that, but, but the, the budget we prepared for is 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 a, a, a no deal Brexit budget, um, and we've provided funding for that eventuality. But in the end of the day, uh, it is a serious serious situation in terms of you know exporting our goods and services into the UK uh, in terms of tariffs quotas. Um, the other issue we're concerned about, even if there was, even with a deal, there will be significant disruption. And there will be significant uh, additional um, uh, burdens on businesses in respect of customs declarations and and other uh, um, form filling and all the basic Mm. requirements because Britain will be outside the customs union. Um, And in Dublin Port recently, they were saying to me that basically they will move from handling one and a half million um, declarations to about 20 million per annum. So uh, we've put a huge effort into preparedness and uh, Foreign Minister Simon Coveney has done a lot of work in that regard. The, bill, the legislation just went through the Doyle recently. We've protected the common travel area. Uh, all of the various agreements from education, social protection to health have been signed off with the UK government. Um, so we're as prepared as we possibly can be. I am worried that some SMEs may not be as prepared. Those who may do occasional dealing in Britain, um, there is a concern that some of them may not have signed up for revenue um, and so we're constantly pumping out the message about preparedness. COVID has taken over the messaging mm-hmm. and the communication around Brexit, which isn't helpful either. Uh, if you recall, before COVID, this was the number one issue. It's been relegated in terms of the profiling of it. Still is a, a very key issue for us meet long term. Uh, my own sense is Britain leaving the European Union is a, is a one, one in a 50 year event for Ireland. We joined with the United Kingdom. Uh, it's a very fundamental thing for our economic model. 
um, and it's going, to, it's going to be challenging for us. And that's why a future relations agreement between the EU and Britain is so important to us. Sure. Um, Let's hope we get a deal. But if we don't get a deal agreed by the end of the year, what's your sense of how it will play out in 2021? How soon before the EU and the UK get back around the table and start negotiating again? Because there has to be a deal eventually, doesn't it? Well, I, I just get worried about that talk, and I know some member states might have entertained that, but to me that's, that, that's, not, that's easier said than done, and there are no definites in this world. And if you break up an acrimony, soreness develops, and you may not be able to put it back together as smooth, smoothly as you might like to think. Plus the fact that if you break up because you want the other side to blink before you, or you want to sort of uh, really put it up to the other side or make, you know, won't say humiliate the other side or... Uh, just make them go too far. I think that doesn't help a future agreement. In other words, the mood music has to be right. The mood music has to be... And I, in fairness, when Michel Barnier spoke to us two months ago, um, he made a very good point, you know, that first of all, he wanted to get a deal for peace in Ireland. Then he said, you know, in terms of the trading made sense. But also he said the geopolitical situation demands really that uh, UK and Europe are aligned so far as they possibly can be. And given now the election of President Joe Biden, I think we're looking at a potential resetting of the relationship between Europe and the United States. I would have thought the UK would want to be part of that. I think you're looking at a multilateral thrust from Biden. Uh, he's made it clear to me in his telephone conversation with me that he wants to rejoin the Paris Accord. So he's very strong on climate change, which Britain is as well, to be fair. I mean, Britain is stronger than some EU member states on, on, on climate change and on the environment. And I don't have much talk with people who say that Britain will reduce their standards on the environment. I don't think that stacks up. I think they've set more ambitious targets than some of the member states, even ourselves. Now, we've now, as a result of the new government, I think really ramped up our, our ambition for, for, for climate change. So uh, I think with the election of Joe Biden, it could over time change the whole relationship. So that's why we need a, a harmonious um, engagement and agreement. If it breaks up an acrimony and people think we can put it all together again in a month's time because they'll have been taught a lesson or people realise this is mad, mm -hmm. look at all the disruption you're going to cause people in the meantime, loss of jobs um, and so forth. And that's a, that to me is not a sensible way of doing business. Does Brexit bring forward the date for potentially for a united Ireland? Um, my view is that we need to resolve Brexit um, in terms of the issues that Brexit throws up. I think in terms of the uh, future of this island, I think the Good Friday Agreement still has to be the, um, the key uh, foundation document, a framework for relationships on the island. Uh, that allows for various constitutional scenarios to play out. But in the meantime, I think we need to realise the full potential of that agreement, which we haven't to date, and particularly in the North-South economy, we haven't. Particularly in North-South relationships could be improved. In um, what areas? And, um, well, particularly in terms of, I think, uh, some areas of the economy. I think on the SME sector, for example, I think even though Intertrade Ireland is doing good work, uh, having been a Minister for Enterprise for four years, having been on trade missions with companies from both the North and the Republic together, you know, uh, it seems to me that we could do with one enterprise agency on the island of Ireland that would promote SMEs north and south, develop synergies between them, uh, work with Intertrade Ireland if necessary as well. But you know, in terms of overseas trade trade missions, we have a very extensive network through Enterprise Ireland. Northern firms could benefit from. We could equally benefit from their network, um, and uh, that would make sense to me. Uh, I think there should be one food authority in Ireland. We have three at the moment. Uh, so what's holding it back? You know. Well, politics and uh, mm. how things have evolved, and that's why I've developed the Shared Island uh, Initiative uh, to concentrate on what's doable. 
I'd secured 500 million euro funding for it. Last week's um, North South Ministerial Council allocated money for um, the Sligo Enniskill and Greenway uh, for the Ulster Canal. It's going to be a really exciting project. Um, uh, and also uh, the A5 has been recommitted to, although it's stuck in a lot of planning issues. Uh, Narrow Water Bridge is something we want to see built and, and really just enable communities to engage better. Uh, we've allocated funding to a feasibility study for rapid rail. Uh, Belfast, Dublin, Cork, Limerick uh, and Derry and, and, and uh, so uh, Eamon Ryan has announced an all-island rail network feasibility study. Uh, that's the kind of practical uh, sure. stuff that can make a difference in terms of the island economy uh, and it's something I'm very, very keen on and I want to, really want to drive it and that is why I think we must work, you know, the, the, the three sets of relationships in the Good Friday Agreement, the British-Irish, North-South and the two traditions within the North are key. We're also anxious to tap into the shared dialogue part of, of, of our Shared Ireland initiative, the idea around uh, the new communities, North and South. What, what's their perspective on it? Uh, there was a very interesting, uh, our first dialogue series was among young people on the island, many of whom were born after the Good Friday mm. Agreement. They had interesting perspectives and fresh perspectives as well. Um, and we're trying to reawaken an interest in this subject. Um, and on the education front, we believe mm. I would like to see greater sharing of curriculum on English literature, for example, on history, that we could develop shared narratives around history. Uh, and then an all-island research hub will be funded through the, through the Shared Island Fund as well, uh, where we do peer-reviewed uh, competition for funding, uh, universities in North and South joining up in consortium to bid for research funding. And I think that would, that, that's the kind of thing that I really want to get um, traction on, and I think I can. Can I ask you about corporation tax? Um, it's been really uh, a very strong revenue stream for us over the last um, few years, and it's been very good this year. It has helped narrow the gap uh, somewhat in terms of COVID and the costs of COVID. But it has been said this OECD process to try and put a framework around global taxation, uh, particularly around digital um, companies, that it will cost Ireland. It will result in a loss of corporation tax. So. How long more do you think we're, we're going to have this strong revenue stream and how much do you think we might ultimately lose? I don't have the specifics on, on, on figures in terms of how, we, how much we could potentially lose at the end of the um, OECD process. Uh, we do realise there are challenges coming down the line on this. That said, we've always been robust and resilient in relation to this issue. Um, when I was last in government in, 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 in um, throughout the 2000s and the late 90s, it was still uh, a strong issue in Europe. Uh, and, um, you know, people um, having various views in terms of our, our taxation policy. Um, but I think we've done the right thing to work with the OECD process, and we're going to be faithful to that. Uh, and we're mindful of the risks as well in terms of the significant revenues and the increased revenues that have come on board in recent years, that they will not be there forever. Um, and... Um, but that then means we have to, on two levels really, we have to factor in, you know, whatever reform process we're signing up to and the implications of that reform process on our own revenues. But also then can we be continue to be competitive in attracting inward investment? I mean, it is extraordinary. In the last two crises now, uh, the FDI sector has been particularly resilient and robust and has actually been a factor in enabling us to deal with, with the crisis. Um, and most recently, the because it's a health crisis at the moment, our, our, our farmer side uh, is growing very strongly. Our digital side, because of the technology implications of COVID, you know, in terms of 
various companies is growing exponentially as well. Uh, companies growing like five and six hundred within months uh, in Ireland, uh, and so, uh, so so we can become more competitive. Now there will be issues around the, the, the tax changes, and it's, it's a bit early yet to be too specific in terms of the impact on our revenues. But we're not blind to realities, and we know there will be challenges. There always will be. Our objective is to protect the national interest as much as we possibly can, uh, whilst working uh, in a multilateral way through organisations like the OECD, the European Union and others. Are you confident that there's going to be a deal? Because uh, the process, uh, you know, it appears at times just to be going, going around in circles and the Americans, whether we're getting serious engagement from the Americans is open to question. Uh, and I, I appreciate there's a change of administration coming there, so maybe that'll change. Um, but surely that's better than countries like France, Spain, Italy, the UK, as they've all sort of threatened to put in place a digital sales tax, which might impact what's going on here in terms of big tech. Um, an OECD agreement would be better than them unilaterally deciding yeah, it would. to put something in place themselves. It would, uh, and we would prefer an OECD process to be successful. Um, at the European level, there are moves afoot, um, and um, you know there, there's a we, there's quite a number. There'll be an interesting debate in Europe in the coming years on the digital issue, but also on the broader technology front. And a phrase has emerged in Europe: you know, strategic autonomy has been encouraged coming out of COVID and we're, we're nervous of that and when I say nervous is the wrong word we're opposed to that if it means protectionism or if it means artificially trying to develop and engineer European champions in particular sectors like technology in our view companies should grow through the prowess of their research and the caliber of their products um, and um, so we would be we believe in a free trading environment um, not to try and regulate out, uh, over-regulate out competitors um, because they might be um, too competitive for your own uh, national champions. And so that debate will continue, I think, in, in Europe for the next while. Some member states are uh, with Ireland on this, that we don't want any protectionist urge to emerge through a, th through a concept known as strategic autonomy, um, and that has been floated. Um, so there is this tension at times between American technology companies and European regulatory uh, authorities, which we're mindful of, but whatever transpires must be fair, um, and um, uh, and there can't be any um, crude protectionism. Yeah, and the big tech companies, the likes of Facebook and Google, have been they've been cautioned by regulators on both sides of the Atlantic, haven't they, about the the influence they're exercising yeah. at the minute, the monopolies. That's um, still, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there's two elements to this. Yeah, there's that whole privacy issue, there's all, but but there's also some suspicions that, you know, there, there may be moves to try and unfairly um, uh, limit their reach or, mm. or limit their impact. And, and, and I would be concerned about that, you know, because whatever one's view on Silicon Valley is, uh, a lot of the products did emerge through innovation, uh, through, through research. Europe needs to replicate that, though. And I have no problem with Europe growing its own champions. But they have to it be... Doesn't be happening, does it? No, it doesn't. Yeah, you're right. And, and in a number, on a number of fronts. That's why the European Research Centre was set up many years ago, 10 years ago, to try and create... Like, even Europe lost its preeminent position in pharma, for example. Europe was much stronger in, in pharmaceutical research than it is today. Mm. Um, I mean, the whole idea of Airbus was a great mm. success, European success story. Um, and it came to rival Boeing and other, other, but it did it through dint of American, German, and French collaboration. Um, and um, that's the way to do it, you know, uh, build up a genuine uh, mm. sort of good product and uh, and so forth. 
Uh, and in terms of FDI this year, COVID has obviously been uh, a drag on, on FDI. So um, wh what's it looking like for the year as a whole and what's your hope for next year? I think on the technology front, um, we've done quite well. Um, and uh, I've met quite a number of companies now that have grown fairly significantly in the year. Um, so there are two elements to FDI, uh, the growth in existing companies. Mm. Often that gets unnoticed and quite a number of companies don't want to advertise too much how much they're growing by. Uh, sometimes they don't even want to alert their own HQ mm. <laughs> in terms of numbers count and all of that. Um, and then the other is attracting new FDI. And I think the, the, it will be more competitive and difficult in terms of new FDI in the, in, in the next while because of COVID. Um, and, you know, we mentioned like some of the, MIC te uh, the technology companies like Hips and because a lot of that has slowed down, slowed down because of COVID, um, elective operations globally because of the impact of COVID. So that's kind of hit their uh, bottom line for the moment. But they'll bounce back uh, in a post-COVID world. We're well positioned uh, on FDI in Ireland because we have a very strong, reliable, high manufacturing uh, base, high excellence um, in manufacturing, particularly on the life sciences front. And the technology companies are, are well embedded here. Uh, and we have quite uh, a significant um, digital presence as well. Uh, so we are well placed. And I think, generally speaking, from the companies I have spoken to in the last six months, they're very happy with their position in Ireland. They're happy with the atmosphere here, the relationship with government, the pro-enterprise approach that is evident in Ireland. But above all, they're very happy with the workforce and the quality of the workforce they have in Ireland and the education system. Finally, Tisha, can I ask you just about um, your own plans for Christmas, New Year? We're still waiting on this Brexit deal. Um, obviously, the vaccines uh, are going to begin to be uh, rolled out. So what's the Christmas, New Year period looking like for you personally? Personally, in terms of? In terms of how much time do you get off? And, uh, you know, well, it's quite short this year. It's going to be very short. Uh, are you going to be sweating over Brexit? Yeah. <laughs> I think Boris is going to take us through Christmas Day. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, already we didn't anticipate this announcement today, if I'm honest. Uh, so, that, you know, you're kind of, we got a letter on the 17th, if you remember, just before the weekend, and everyone was kind of shouting at us, we'll have a, have a meeting on Saturday, you know? And mm. we wisely took the decision not to rush this. Um, because we've learned from previous episodes that if you rush it, you're, you're not doing anyone any favours. But as it turned out, by yesterday, we were getting another letter four days later saying, ah, you must do much more. Um, so that's how rapid it's moving. And then you have the Brexit situation. And I'm watching COVID and the vaccination rollout. And we'll be keeping an eye on COVID all over Christmas. We'll have another meeting at the Cabinet on the 29th of December. Um, so we're looking at a, um, a short few days. Yeah, But I don't mind that. That's, that's my job. And, right. uh, and, uh, and if we are to get a deal on, on Brexit, do you think it's New Year's Eve kind of territory? Um, that a flag, a white flag gets raised or, you know, I don't know. The balloon goes up or the smoke comes out the chimney, whatever the <laughs> will we, analogy will, might be. Will we be allowed out on New Year's Eve? <laughs> I joke. Uh, we you're an I mean, essential worker, so I think you're okay. I, I, know, I think, look, he'll do it before New Year's Eve or we hopefully we'll have it done before then. But look, if we don't, we don't. And then we're in a difficult situation. Um, um, but I, I would like to think that um, uh, we could, you know, next number of days, we, sh we should know one way or the other how this is going to fall, you know. Um, um, and finally, finally, What's your message to those people who are, you know, hairdressers or business owners who are facing having to shut down now once again and this year and facing into an uncertain period early in the new year? What's, what's your message? My message to, to, the, to, to, to people in that situation is, look, we do, we do really get it as a government how 
desperate this has been for you, um, how severe it has been on your business. We salute the fact that you've held in there. We're asking you to hold on. Just give it, give it a bit more time. We're going to be there to support you, engage with us, maintain dialogue with the relevant government departments, which are, you know, which are aligned government departments. Keep talking to us in terms of what you think you need. We have a whole suite of instruments already. We're going to have to renew those and refresh those now for the new year. And as I said earlier, we're thinking ahead also in terms of rebooting some of these sectors and getting them going again in a post-COVID environment. So, uh, you know, it, nothing pains us as more as much as having to close businesses through restrictions. It goes against the grain of any political sort of motivation or, or, or instinct. Um, and uh, but we have to do it to protect lives. And also, you know, there is a sense that if you if you move quickly when it, when, it, when a pandemic is rising, you actually ultimately protect the economy better. So that's the overall message. It, we don't do any, ourselves any favors if we kept going and just numbers got out of control. I think that would only make it worse for everybody. But it's been particularly bad for the hospitality sector and the entertainment world, the arts world, and culture as well. Anywhere where there's a need for an audience or where there's excessive congregation, it, it's very very difficult. But we're there. We are there to help. Is the message from government? Okay, Tishuk, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for joining Inside Business. I'd like to wish you well in your negotiations on Brexit and with the vaccine rollout as well. I think everybody wishes uh, wishes you well on that. Hopefully we can get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible and I just wish you a happy Christmas. Thank you very much indeed. May I wish you a very happy Christmas uh, and a, uh, hopefully a COVID-free <laughs> 2021 at some stage. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Taoiseach Michal Martin. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. This week's show was produced by Declan Conlon. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day over the festive period. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next week, take care, stay safe and have a happy Christmas. (laughs) 